Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Series last weekend uh, that we are calling the greatest promise, and I love this graphic that we have coming up on the screen. Magically, five, four, three, two, one. There it is. Uh, shout out to our, our graphics. What did I call you last week? Graphics savant. Yes, who created this graphic for us? Love you, Tim Santos. Um, having been talking about promises all year long, we felt it was only appropriate to conclude the year the same way we started, and we've titled this series The Greatest Promise, and that promise obviously being the coming of a Messiah, Jesus, who we will celebrate on Christmas in just a few weeks and at our Christmas services on December 17th. Um, But we are going about the study of this promise in a rather unconventional way. Uh, Rather than spending the weeks leading up to Christmas discussing the New Testament narrative about the birth of Christ and all the events surrounding it, we are instead spending the weeks leading up to Christmas looking at the Old Testament. Specifically, we're looking at the lives of some individuals who, who foreshadowed or, or pointed to prophetically the coming of a Messiah. And the reason we are looking at the Old Testament in an attempt to find Jesus is because Jesus himself told us that we are allowed to do just that. In our key verse for this series, John chapter 5, verse 39, these are the words of Jesus. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal eternal life, but the scriptures, they actually point to me. Uh, we said this last week, and I'll remind us of it again. When, when Jesus made this statement, it was before any of the New Testament was even written. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were just some punk teenagers trying to follow Jesus around, figuring out what, what their life was supposed to look like as disciples. And some of the New Testament writers, they weren't even saved yet when Jesus made this statement. So when he says, all of the scripture points to me, he is referring to what we would know as the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the Pentateuch. And yet he says, if you will serve through that first half or three quarters of your Bible, you can't help but notice that every single page, everything that's written, it actually points to me. Or as the uh, late great theologian Charles Spurgeon said, if you search the roadmap of scripture, you cannot help but find a road to London. Uh, is that a foreign phrase? Anyone ever heard that before? Okay, if you're in the first service, you're cheating. But let, let me tell you the story. This is a, this is a really, really cool story. Um, Spurgeon, one of my favorite theologians, uh, he tells a story like this. Uh, apparently he was teaching one time in a small village in England. And uh, after the, the sermon, a bunch of people were waiting around from the church to you know, tell him he did a good job, handshake, high five good game, whatever they did back then, I don't know. And uh, afterwards, after all the people left, he saw an elderly man standing in the corner waiting to talk to him. So the elderly man approaches and Spurgeon looks at him and he says, so, so what'd you think of the sermon? And the elderly guy looks back at him. He said, well, it was okay, but, but I found it lacking. Um, By the way, if you're looking for a phrase to offer to me in the lobby afterwards today, maybe put that one on ice, all right? If you feel like the sermon is lacking today, I probably felt like the sermon was lacking today as well. Let's just high five and eat a donut and go home and try again next week, all right? It'll be great. But, uh, but he, he, uh, he says, okay, so you found it lacking. What, what do you mean by that? And this wise old man looks at him with a smile on his face. And he says, well, young man, you didn't speak of Christ at all in your sermon. And Spurgeon looks back at him. He says, well, we were, we were studying an Old Testament passage and Christ had not yet been born. And then with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, the older man stared back at him and he smiled and he said, young man, the queen has allowed every town, village, and hamlet in England to design their streets as they see fit. However, she has demanded that in the center of every one of them, there be a road which leads to London. 
And man, if you looked at the scriptures, you would discover that at the center of every passage, there is a road which leads to Christ. Powerful statement. And that is why if today you were to take my Bible and you were to thumb through the Old Testament, you would find written in the margins over and over and over again the word London. Because I constantly want to remind myself that even though I'm reading stories where the name Jesus may not show up, all of these scriptures point to him. But if you were to look in the book of Genesis in my Bible, and maybe around the 22nd chapter, which is where we're going to spend our time today, you would probably see this word London written more than any of the Old Testament stories because it is in the story we're studying this morning that I think we find countless roads which lead to London. And that story, of course, in Genesis 22, being the one of Abraham, Sarah, and his promised son, Isaac. So uh, as we get into the word this morning, I want to pray. I'm going to give you a, a title. If you were here last week, you know we started this out borrowing the voice of Woody from Toy Story. Uh, we called the sermon, There's a Lamb in the Garden. Today, we're going to go ahead and follow up with, There's a Ram on the Mountain. Give me your best Southern accent and try it with me. Ready? One, two, three. There's a <laughs> B plus. Good job. All right. I found it lacking. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> let's, let's pray and, uh, and we'll get into the word. Uh, Lord, we love you this morning. We thank you for your presence in this house. God, I thank you for worship and the, the beautiful opportunity that we have every time we gather to lift up the name of Jesus and to not just sing songs, but encounter your very presence among us. God, thank you that we live on this side of eternity. The veil was torn at the cross and all have been granted access to the presence of God. And as we sit in the presence and we begin to study the scriptures, I pray that Jesus, you would reveal yourself to us. Even in a story that might be familiar to many, would we see you in a new way? And may we leave this place transformed having seen you. We pray all these things in your name. And the church said, amen, amen. So the story of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, it is, is a rather lengthy one in scripture. Um, not only does it span some 12 chapters in the book of Genesis, it is a major part of the narrative of scripture. It's woven in and peppered in all throughout the Bible. And so we really don't have time today to look at every single one of the scriptures that, that might point us to Jesus. And that means you're gonna have to bear with me a little bit as I kind of dip in and out of narrative and do my best to kind of bullet point the main thoughts that ultimately lead us down this road to London. Um, Abraham in scripture is called the, the father of the faith. Very important language as it pertains to this greatest promise of a Messiah because it is through this father that we are told all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. But this promised blessing, it, it comes in a somewhat unorthodox story, a story that is laced with intrigue and disappointment and, and even some scandal. Uh, when Abraham is 75 and Sarah is 66, the two of them are childless and the Lord comes to speak to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a son. Uh, now, that might seem a little bit late in the baby making game, 75 and 66, but I would remind us that in scripture, people lived a little bit longer back in these days. Abraham made it to 175, uh, Sarah to 127. So if you just kind of run the aggregate, they're still within their baby making years, all right? So, so all is okay. So, so Abraham believed what the Lord said. It was counted unto him as faith, as we read in the scriptures. And he and Sarah got busy. Uh, they lit the candles, gargled some mouthwash, put in the boys to men. He looked at his wife and he just began to sing, I may love to you, and you want me. It's, it, you had to like, dig deep into the Hebrew, but it's in there. Like this is, it's all there. Right? 
<laughs> so, so the two make their best attempt to, to make a baby. And uh, Sarah, three weeks later, she goes to CVS, gets the pregnancy test, comes home, and takes it only to find out that she is not pregnant. And they look at each other, and they're a little disappointed, but they're like, yeah, we enjoyed the process. That was fun. Let's run it back. So they put in the CD, light the candles, and, and they do it again. But again, she takes the test, and there's no baby. And this cycle continues for months, years, decades. The, the candles are burning low. The CD is skipping. And the two are disappointed because they are not seeing the fulfillment of this promise. Now, it is at this point in the story where most preachers, myself included, would generally skip ahead 25 years to the fulfillment of this promise in the birth of a son named Isaac. But in light of current world events and all that we're seeing unfold in the Middle East, I think it would be a bit tone deaf for me to not take a brief pit stop about a decade into this journey because I think seeing the events as they play out might help us frame in our worldview of what we're seeing take place uh, today in the Middle East. Um, so now Abraham is, I think he's, uh, Sarah's 77, he's 85, and about a decade into this process, and they still haven't had a child. And because they're a bit disappointed, Sarah decides to take matters into her own, her own hands. And so she comes to Abraham and she says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have sex with my servant Hagar, and if she gets pregnant, we can run the blessing through, through her and, and through this child that's provided. By the way, man, that's really bad advice. If your wife ever tells you to do that, please just say no, all right? Also, just side tip, if your wife asks you if you will remarry after she dies, say no. I just learned that one this week at dinner with some friends. Thank you for sharing that and ruining my marriage for a night, guys. That was awesome. Uh, but I'm hard-headed. Abraham was hard-headed, and so he had to learn that lesson the hard, the hard way. And we read this uh, in Genesis chapter 16. It said, so Abram had... So oh, sorry, pause. I forgot this last service too. Um, so before Abraham was Abraham, he was the artist formerly known as Abram, and Sarah was Sarai. So that's who we're reading about here, just so that we know what we're talking about. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to her husband, this is all your fault. Typical. So don't say that either, all right? Just, uh, okay. <laughs> uh, I put my servant into your arms, but now she's pregnant. She treats me with contempt. The Lord will show you who's wrong, you or me. And Abram replied, look, <laughs> gear down, Sarah Bear. All right, you told me to do this. I'm just doing what you told me to do. She's your servant, so, so deal with her as you see fit. And Sarah, I treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. The angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears, for the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Thereafter, thereafter, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. Now, if you fast forward just a couple of verses into chapter 17, and then again in chapter 21, you will read that Abraham pleads with the Lord to bless this son Ishmael. 
Even though he was a son born in disobedience and a son born in the way that was not how God had designed, the Lord says to Abraham, I will bless your son Ishmael, I will give him many descendants, and I will make him into a great nation. Despite your disobedience, Abraham, this is seed from you, and as a result of him being your son, I will bless him. Now, what does that have to do with Gaza and Israel Palestinians, everything. Because just as the Jewish people would trace their lineage back to the seed of Abraham known as Isaac, so Arab people, Palestinians, would trace their lineage back to the second son of Abraham, Ishmael. This son that God promised he would bless, this son that God promised he would make into a great nation, and yet he would live in open hostility with his relatives. So let me be clear. What we are seeing right now unfold on the other side of the world, it was prophesied in scripture. This is not the first time, sadly, I don't think it will be the last time we begin to see conflict between brothers. The news narratives would like us to believe that this is a fight over land, this is a fight over rights, or a myriad of other things, but friends, this is a battle between brothers that has been raging for generations. And if we get off of social media for just a couple of moments and stop listening to what's propagated by uninformed or unbiblical public pundits, then we can look into the scripture and discover, wait a minute, this is a spiritual battle. It has always been a spiritual battle, and it continues to be a spiritual battle. And you cannot politicize your way out of a spiritual battle. War does not solve spiritual battles. Spiritual battles are fought with spiritual weapons. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They don't come in the form of guns and tanks and all the rest of that stuff. They come in the form of spiritual weapons, namely prayer. Prayer is not our last resort. Prayer is our first response to conflicts like this. Because spirits don't respond to politicians. Spirits don't respond to posts. Spirits don't respond to protests. Spirits respond to prayer. It is in prayer that we pull down spiritual strongholds of hatred and division and all the garbage that has tried to tear these two brothers apart since their inception. And so I will say, let the rest of the world respond however the rest of the world wants to respond. But I don't want to be known as a church that just posts about it or a church that protests about it. I want to be known as a church that prays about it before anything else. Prayer is the greatest weapon we've been given. Prayer moves mountains. Prayer changes nations. Prayer flips situations on their head. When Hezekiah found himself with an opposing enemy, he prayed, and God said, because you prayed, I will deliver you from your enemy. When Jehoshaphat faced an inevitable army coming up against him, he prayed, and God gave them a strategy. Just worship your way through this, and I will send angels to do battle on your behalf. When Peter was a hostage in prison, the church prayed and the chains fell, an angel delivered him from a prison cell and he walked up to the prayer meeting like, what's up? No, prayer is not a lazy response to what we're seeing take place. Prayer is the best response and the first response, it is the greatest weapon we've been given. 
And furthermore, we would be wise to not frame our opinions or our ideologies around unbiblical voices, but rather to go back to the scriptures and say, what does God have to say about this situation? Because the scriptures are clear. Both sons will be blessed. Both sons deserve to be nations. Both sons will have many descendants and be established. And God does not celebrate the death of any of Abraham's children, regardless of what son they came from in the first place. In fact, it was in the crucible of this conflict that he revealed himself as the God who sees and the God who hears. So rest assured, he sees everything that's happening on the other side of the world, and he hears the prayers of the saints when they cry out for deliverance and peace, and he will respond because that's who he is. It's his very name as introduced to us here in the scriptures. So let me tell us again, as a community, if you need some some handles, how do I respond to this? pray. And here's how we're praying as a community. If you want to take out your phone and take a picture, you can do that. If you want, we're going to email this stuff out in our newsletter. But this is how we're praying. Yes, of course we're praying. And this is our first response to everything. But as scripture tells us, in addition to prayer, we're giving aid. We're not saying be well and then not giving a practical coat for somebody who finds themselves cold according to the book of James. So we are giving, as we've said from the beginning, 3% of our annual budget goes out to the Middle East, and it has since we started five years ago. This is not a knee-jerk response to what's happening. We have always felt that the gospel needed to be preached first and foremost in that part of the world. And so we've been investing for years. And obviously in times like this, we ramp that investment up. There'll be some giving opportunities coming up. They're not sitting in this service, but in the first service, one of our ministry partners, Heart of Mercy, was sitting here. They just got back from the West Bank. They are airlifting three containers to God in the next few days. We're gonna help fund all of that. And we are praying for and financially supporting both sides of the border in this season because there are people on both sides of the border that need practical aid and they need our prayers, okay? So this is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna pray, we're gonna give, it's what we do. And we're gonna, we're gonna live by the mandate that God has given us as a church. If you wanna know what the Father's house is all about, here it is, ready? By evidence, by the very geography of our city, God has called us to be a bridge between divided people, to hold the hands on both sides, say, I love you, I love you, and we're gonna pray for peace in times of chaos. Capiche? Does that sound good? Okay. All right. The pastor made his statement. There you go. Okay. Back to the lecture at hand. Perfection is perfection, so I'm gonna try to understand. If you know that, <laughs> we have a past. Okay. So the saga continues. Abraham is now 99 years old. Sarah is 90. And the two are still childless. Now, Scripture tells us at this point that they are well beyond their baby-making years. Um, They're kind about it. It says, Sarah is past her baby-making years. That's not how the Scripture says it. But it's essentially the way of saying she doesn't have the capacity to form a child in her womb any longer. And at this time, God comes and he says to her, Hey, um, it's time. Remember that promise I made you guys like 25 years ago about a baby? We're gonna go ahead and do that one now, now. And Abraham's like, are you sure? Like, now? He's like, now. He looks at his wife, he's like, are you sure? He's like, yeah, I'm sure, now. He says, okay. So he pries himself out of the lazy boy, shuffles himself back over to the bedroom, gets the candles out, puts on the boys to men. (laughs) And they give it one more try. But this time, supernaturally, 
God provides a child. She's pregnant. And nine months later, the two give birth to this promised son, and they name him Isaac. And, and for a moment in the story, it looks like the family's going to live happily ever after. All is good. But then just when you think everything's okay, God shows up and messes everything up. He asks Abraham to do something absolutely unthinkable, but it is in this unthinkable request that we begin to see our road to London. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 1 goes on to say this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early, saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac, and they chopped wood for the fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up <clears throat> and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, he told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Dad? Yes, son. Um, so like, see the fire? See the wood? Where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac, laid him on an altar on top of the wood. Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not harm him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, or if you're from the south, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And then Abraham and Isaac walked down the mountain and had a very awkward conversation. <laughs> Cliff notes. This is a very familiar story to many of us. It's one of the most popular stories in, in the whole Bible, and it is rich with application. Um, as I was researching this week, I went back and looked, and we've actually used this passage of Scripture five times in the last five years during sermons. It's apparently an annual affair. Uh, and as we've studied this text, we have used it to, to, to consider many different truths. We've used it to talk about worship and faith. We've even used it in a sermon talking about generosity. But one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it is a never-ending well to draw from. It is like an onion. You peel back layer by layer by layer, and there's always more. If you don't do onions, it's like the Pillsbury Doughboy biscuits. You just, they flake back one layer at a time. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's what Scripture's like. You can search the Scriptures your whole life. Read the same book every single day until you die and still get something fresh out of it every single time you approach it because it's a, a book that is alive and active. It cuts sharper than a two-edged sword. It's reading you while you're reading it. And so today we come once again, now a sixth time to this familiar passage, but we consider it through a different lens. 
Today, we look at it and we ask ourselves, how does this align with Jesus' assertion that all scripture points to him? Where does this familiar story take us to London? Well, let's start with the stuff that we already know, the, the obvious details in the text. We know that Isaac was a son born of supernatural conception. Sarah was beyond her ability to conceive, and yet God, by his supernatural power, he planted this seed with inside, of, inside of her and allowed the two of them to have a child, not by natural means, but by the Spirit. We also know that, as we said a moment ago, Isaac was not Abraham's only son. If you grew up in church, you know the song. Father Abraham and many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I so are you, so less. <laughs> no, no arms, no arms, no arms. Now, we, we, we all went to the same church growing up. There you go, okay. And yet, despite the fact that Isaac was not Abraham's only son, God comes to him in Genesis 22 and he says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him up as a sacrifice. We also know in verse six that this only son was asked to carry the wood which would be used for the altar up the side of the mountain, essentially being asked to carry his own execution device up the side of the hill. So we're already beginning to see the parallels here. You can kind of already see the road to London getting dusted off a little bit. Like, ah. But there's even some stuff buried beneath the surface. We also know that Isaac laid his life down willingly. We can deduce that pretty simply by just doing a little bit of math. At this point, Isaac is some 16, 17 years old, and Abraham's 117. Last time I checked, if I were to put a 117-year-old guy up against a teenager, I think I know who's going to win that fight, right? A senior citizen is not going to be able to subdue a teenager. So in order for Isaac to be bound and laid on an altar, it had to be an act of his will, in obedience to his father. And finally, because of the great work of theologians and scholars, we know that this very same mountain that Abraham and Isaac sojourned up was the mountain thousands of years later where Jesus would hang on a cross between two criminals. You put it all together, it becomes pretty clear. This story is foreshadowing a coming savior. It's painting the picture of the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. For like Isaac, Jesus was born of supernatural conception. He was the fruit of a virgin's womb. Joseph didn't believe it at first, but he, but he was. <laughs> and like Isaac, he was called the only son of God. You know the scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Except for there was another son that God made in a garden thousands of years prior, and yet he calls this his one and only son that whoever believes in would have eternal life. And like Isaac, Jesus was asked to carry his execution device up the side of a hill called Golgotha, a cross that he would be nailed to before he declared it is finished. And that act was not a, a forcing of human hands. That was an act of his own submission, an act of his own will. 
For he said to his father in the garden, if it is possible, let this cup pass me by. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Where one son failed in a garden at the beginning of time, another son succeeded in a garden because he was obedient unto death. And finally, we know, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that in the same way Abraham received Isaac back to life after a three-day journey, so Christ came out of a tomb three days later, and he defeated death, hell, and the grave once and for all. It is the truest of the, the scriptures we can read on this side of that event. It's, so we know. So you, you can kind of see, <laughs> it's clear. This whole thing points to Jesus. It appears as though we found our Messiah on the mountain. All the signs point to him. Yet, we can't quite jump to that conclusion. For if we did, then we might need to retitle this text. If Isaac was the only picture of Christ on the mountain, then there would be no need for this ram that finds itself conveniently caught in a thicket. And yet there is. Abraham raises a knife over his son, getting ready to sacrifice this promise. And God calls out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Lord. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't sacrifice the human. For now I know you love me. You're willing to obey me. Even when I ask you to do what seems impossible, you're willing to submit to me. So because I know this now, I want you to turn and notice that there's a ram in this thicket over here. You didn't see it before. I don't even know if it was there before, but now there's a ram in the thicket. And what I want you to do is take that ram, pull your human son off the altar and lay this ram on the altar instead. A ram for a man. A ram on the mountain instead of a man on the mountain. Now, I know we're in San Francisco, so there's probably not a lot of farmers hanging out in the room right now, but does anybody know what a ram is? It's a male sheep. Thank you, Dad. You're in the first service. That's awesome. It's a male sheep. Actually, he said it first service. Credit where credit is due. It's a male sheep. Some might call it a lamb. Abraham did. When he and Isaac were walking up the side of the hill and Isaac's like, hey, dad, um, I see the knife. I see the fire. I see the wood. Who's going to die up here? <laughs> Abraham prophesied when he said, don't worry, my son, for the Lord will provide a lamb for the sacrifice when we get up to the top of this mountain. And thousands of years later, the Lord provided a lamb for the sacrifice at the top of Mount Moriah once and for all. Ladies and gentlemen, we have discovered Jesus. Our road to London. He is the ram that was caught in the thicket. As we reminded ourselves of last week, he is the lamb. 
The one that John the Baptist declared would be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The one that Isaiah prophesied would go like a lamb to the slaughter and wouldn't even say a word. The one that Revelation speaks of where it says he sits like a lamb that has been slain on the throne receiving the praise of the elders and the angels and the living creatures as they declare blessing and honor, glory and power be unto the lamb who sits on the throne. But before John heralded him or Isaiah prophesied of him or Revelation revealed him, Isaac encountered him as a ram in a thicket at the top of the mountain who gave its life in exchange for his. But Isaac was not alone up there in the same way that Adam and Eve were not alone in the garden. You, me, we were all on top of that mountain at some point. This is, this is more than just a couple of guys hanging out on top of a mountain finding a lamb. This is our story. For we all laid at one point on the altar of death, deserving death as a result of our sin. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. We've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's standard, and thus we all deserve to be under a knife on that altar. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. When sin earned us death, the lamb offered us life. Guys, this is more than just a hiking trip up a mountain. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ buried in Genesis 22. This is the good news that you deserve death. You deserve separation for eternity from God. But Jesus came and he made a way to lay his life down on an altar so that you could be set free. So that your eternity could be spoken for. So that your name could be written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the gospel. But it's not just the gospel. It's also a reminder for those of us who need to be reminded of what it looks like to submit our lives to the gospel. Because ultimately that ram, it didn't even become an option until after Isaac laid his life down on the altar. This was not a one-way transaction, this was an exchange. Meaning, that just as we are supposed to see that ram as the substitutionary sacrifice, we are intended to see ourselves as the surrendered son on the altar. Let me prove it. Romans chapter 12, verse one. It's the words of Paul, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to offer your whole life as a living sacrifice, to lay yourself down on an altar, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your reasonable act of worship. After spending the better part of three chapters reminding the readers of the story of Abraham and Isaac and the faith that it took for Isaac to, Abraham to lay Isaac on that altar, Paul switches the attention to the reader and he says to you and to me, hey, you too have been called to get on an altar. You too have been called to lay your whole life down as a living sacrifice because that is your reasonable response to what God has done for you. But, but Paul's not alone in this appeal, is he? Jesus made the same one. He looked at his disciples and then you and I, and said, if anyone wants to follow me, they must also take up their cross 
they must also lose their life. If you try to cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, then you will truly find it. And I know how that sounds. I can tell how it sounds because we're not hooting and hollering. <laughs> that sounds painful. That sounds uncomfortable. That doesn't get the amens and the applause. And it doesn't align with the comfort gospel that so many have propagated throughout our world these days. But let me remind us, any other version of the gospel is a counterfeit version of the gospel. God did not call you to comfort. He called you to an altar to lay down your life, a living sacrifice, because that is our reasonable response to what he's done for us. To, to be like Isaac and not wait for God to try to bind us up, but to choose of our own volition to wrap ourselves up to be bound together with Christ, as the scriptures say. To say, God, I'm not holding anything back. Everything that I have, everything that I am, I give it to you. And you're not gonna have to force me on this altar. I will willingly lay myself down, bound at the altar. You have my relationships. You have my giftings. You have my finances. You have my future and my plans and everything. I lay it down at an altar for you. S some would call this restricting. Others might call it dead religion. Jesus calls it worship. He says, this is your reasonable response. In light of God's mercy, God, if you did nothing else but provide Jesus, if you did nothing else but ask your son to give his life in exchange for mine, the fact that my name is written in the book of life and I don't have to spend eternity apart from you is more than I deserve and it is more than enough. So I lay my life down, all of it, my plans, my visions, my future, all of it, I lay it down at your feet because that is the most reasonable thing I can do in light of what you've done for me. This is what faith looks like. But as has been aptly stated, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it loves to get off the altar. See, a lot of us start here. The beginning of our journey of faith looks like this. We sing that familiar song, I surrender all, I surrender all. And then God starts asking for stuff. He holds the knife over that relationship he lights a fire under your finances and asks you to give sacrificially. He asks for your plans and your future and your dreams because they're not his plans and his future and his dreams. And suddenly the song changes. I surrender most. I surrender some. As we begin to unbind ourselves, slowly excuse ourselves from the altar. Like, ah, I wanted the, the blessing and the provision, but the surrender and the sacrifice, ugh, ah, it just doesn't sit right in my tom-tom. I don't want that. As we begin to leave the altar when it gets painful. But we would, we would be wise 
to look at this story and remember a very inconvenient truth, a painful one, but a truth nonetheless. When we won't get on the altar, we need to remember there's no ram for an empty altar. The things that we are unwilling to lay on the altar, they are ineligible for redemption. And I think a lot of believers are asking God to redeem and save things that they're not willing to sacrifice. Things they're not willing to lay on the altar. But be reminded, he can only be Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides for you on the mountain when there is a sacrifice on that altar. So let me pose one of those inconvenient and uncomfortable questions we so love to pose around here at the Father's house as the worship team comes and we prepare to close. Let me ask you in keeping with the language of Romans chapter 12, is your whole life on the altar? Your whole life. Not some, not most, your whole life on the altar. I think one of the biggest lies that believers can buy into is the lie of subdivided obedience. This lie that I can, I can divide my life up and choose surrender here, submission here, but do what I want to do over here. Ignore conviction, ignore what the scriptures say about that, kind of Frankenstein a faith together that fits my liking and my comfort and say, okay, I'm right with God. No, you're not. And to be clear, I'm not trying to bash anybody over the head with the Bible like, you need to listen to God. And Don't you know what the Bible says? That doesn't work, by the way. It never has. Bashing people with the scriptures. This is a weapon against the enemy, not against people. <laughs> so, so I'm not trying to be like, obey, obey, obey. I learned a long time ago to let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. He is way better at it than me, okay? But... The preachers of old said it best when they said, he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And when we believe we can ignore conviction or ignore what the Holy Spirit might be speaking to us through the scriptures and still be right with God, we're living in deception. He's not Lord at that point. You're Lord at that point. When you get to choose what you obey and what you don't, you're in charge of your life. So you can't subdivide obedience. It's an all or nothing kind of thing. Either he has all of you or he doesn't. And so I pose the question again, is your whole life on the altar? And if not, here's how much Jesus loves us. He invites us back. He says, okay, time, time to get that rope again. You ready? Okay, wind yourself up. God, I submit it to you again. I surrender it to you again. And I lay my life down again on that altar because I want all that you have for me. Here's the beautiful thing about living like this. When you give all of you to God, you get all of him in response. You get a ram in the thicket when you are the living sacrifice. And if need be, this is the invitation today to say, God, I'm responding to your mercy and I'm laying my life down again. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this invitation. Thank you that it comes time and time and time again. You're the good father that chases down every sheep in the wilderness. It says, come back, come back, come back, come back. I found you. Come back, come back, come back. And for any of us who've 
been attempting to withhold things from the altar, we just repent today. In fact, just let the Holy Spirit search your heart for a moment. If there's things that God's spoken to you about that you haven't, you haven't done anything about yet, just repent. God, I'm sorry. I lay that before you today. I want redemption. I want the exchange. So I lay it on the altar this morning. And maybe as some in the room would consider that, the thing that needs to get on the altar is your whole life, as we said. Maybe you find yourself in the room today and you're at a distance from God. You've never made that choice to lay your life down and let him be Lord. Maybe you did a long time ago, but it's been a while and you've been walking your own way for some seasons. The invitation is the same. Come back to me, son. Come back to me, daughter. In fact, if you find yourself far from God today and you don't want to stay there, I want to pray a very simple prayer of commitment with you before you leave this room. And I ask this every week, no one's looking around, but if, if that describes where you're at today, you need to get things right with Jesus before you leave this place. Will you just simply lift your hand and look at me and say, Tim, I want to pray that prayer along with you today. Got you, bro. Yeah, I got you there, sir. Yeah, both you guys right there. Awesome. Right there in the back. Yeah. Right over here. Cool. Yeah, right here in the second row. Yeah, awesome, man. Hallelujah. Right there in the back. Dear Lord, thank you, Jesus. Yeah, both of you guys. <laughs> oh, God, you're good. Okay, church, with all of these making this decision, pray out loud with boldness. Just repeat after me. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. Thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to willingly bind myself and be your disciple. Help me to walk in your ways from this day forward until I see you in eternity. In the great name of Jesus, amen, amen, amen. Celebrate, come on, that's a lot of people. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.